migration is one of the greatest challenges we're facing. And, you know, just to put some numbers on that, Venezuelans is generating the largest number of migrants or refugees in the region. And the latest statistics is 7.1 million people who have fled the human rights and humanitarian and economic situation in the country. Nearly 6 million of those are in Latin America. If you look at Nicaragua, which is another country that is being subject to repression, around 200,000 citizens have fled since the crackdown in 2018. If you look at Cuba, since the crackdown in 2021 in July, which was the largest protest against the government in decades, the numbers have also increased, reaching to historic peaks that we haven't seen since the 80s and 90s in 2022. Welcome to the Global Rights Defenders podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in each week to hear from global rights defenders and learn about human rights issues worldwide. If you like these episodes, please subscribe, like, or comment below. Your feedback is so, so valuable to me. I read all the comments and emails, so for those of you who've reached out, thank you so, so much and keep it coming. If you want to hear about a particular topic, let me know. You can comment below or reach out to me at globalrightsdefenders.com or by email at globalrightsdefenders at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at GRD underscore now, Facebook or Instagram at Global Rights Defenders. Just a reminder, I'm trying to raise public awareness about human rights issues and eventually make weekly donations to the causes I am advocating for here on this podcast. By supporting this podcast, you are directly supporting those most marginalized and affected by human rights issues worldwide. Today I'm joined by Tamara Tosiuk-Bronner. She's the Deputy Director for the Americas Division at Human Rights Watch. She's covered Mexico and Venezuela and worked on several countries in the region as a senior researcher. She previously was a junior scholar at the Latin American program of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, where she coordinated a project on citizen security in Latin America and worked at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights of the Organization of American States. Tarsioc was born in Venezuela and grew up in Argentina, where she studied law at Torcuato de Tala University. She has published articles in leading newspapers globally and holds a postgraduate diploma on human rights and transitional justice from the University of Chile and a master's degree in law from Columbia Law School. Could you please describe to us some of the human rights issues happening in Latin America and what are the residual effects it has on the region? Thank you for having me today. I would say, look, Latin America is facing today one of the darkest times in decades. We have dictatorships in countries like Venezuela, Cuba, or Nicaragua that are full-fledged dictatorships where there is absolutely no respect for fundamental rights. But we also have an increasing number of places like Mexico, Brazil today under Bolsonaro. Um, we actually, sorry, this is a question I have. We can start again the answer. Yeah. When are you publishing this? Because there are elections in Brazil at the end of the month. It's good to know. So I need two weeks, probably, maybe next week. So after the election. Um, what's yeah. the so today's like, October thirtieth? Uh, probably after, but yeah, probably after. Okay, yeah. then let's start. Let's, let, let's do that again. Sorry, I should have asked that before. Perfect. Yeah, um, great, great background knowledge. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll ask again. Um, yeah. Okay. okay. So um, I'll start my answer again from scratch. Okay. Um, Latin America is facing today one of the darkest times. We had dictatorships 
in the 70s and 80s. We fought very hard to protect and obtain democratic spaces that we're starting to lose. And now our job is is protecting these spaces that we fought very hard to get in Latin America. And we see the extreme examples of dictatorships, like those in Nicaragua, Cuba, or Venezuela. But we also have many countries with authoritarian leaders that are closing democratic spaces. They're going against judicial independence. They're going against the independent press. They're going against civil society. And you see that in a range of governments and countries, regardless of ideology. You see the same pattern, for example, in El Salvador under Bukele, during the government of Bolsonaro in Brazil. You see the same thing with López Obrador in Mexico. So we are seeing, overall, a big challenge in terms of protecting the rule of law and democracy and democratic space in the region. We also are seeing increasing difficulties accessing basic social and economic rights. You know, this is a bit the consequence of the pandemic, of the economic consequences of the pandemic, and this includes access to education. You know, there are many, many kids who didn't have access to education during the pandemic, and you see a disproportionate effect in lower income communities and locations. You know, kids in rural areas did not have access to the internet and the consequences of not being able to go to school during the pandemic is much harsher for these children. And the final big trend that I think is worth highlighting in terms of human rights in the region is the migration crisis, which is one of the largest worldwide and is probably one of the worst we've seen in Latin America in decades. And especially with the Afghanistan and Ukrainian conflicts, there's now an unprecedented 100 million people around the world displaced, majority coming from just five countries, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, mm-hmm. and Myanmar. It really speaks to the type of turmoil that's happening and the type of displacement. And I've noticed that rather than assisting some of the countries, especially nearing Venezuela, they've been increasing their migration policy. So you need to have a stamped passport, you need to have a passport present, or there's just increased border control to not let people in. So rather than assisting these huge spillovers, people are actually just trying to step away from it. And it's it's hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, migration is one of the greatest challenges we're facing. And, you know, just to put some numbers on that, Venezuelans is generating the largest number of migrants or refugees in the region. And the latest statistics is 7.1 million people who have fled the human rights and humanitarian and economic situation in the country. Nearly 6 million of those are in Latin America. If you look at Nicaragua, which is another country that is being subject to repression, around 200,000 citizens have fled since the crackdown in 2018. If you look at Cuba, since the crackdown in 2021 in July, which was the largest protest against the government in decades, the numbers have also increased, reaching to historic peaks that we haven't seen since the 80s and 90s in 2022. And, you know, just to give you some sense of numbers, the U.S. Border Patrol caught 176,000 Cubans between January and August 2022. This is a dramatic increase if you compare to the 28,000 Cubans that were apprehended in the same period 
the previous year. I would like to highlight it's not just the numbers, but also the challenges that they face. You were talking about the difficulties in host countries. There is a increasing problem of xenophobia. There are threats to the way they are treated and abuses they suffer during their journeys when they are trying to reach in many cases, the United States, and they face challenges in accessing legal status in different countries in Latin America and for different reasons, and we can go deeper into that conversation. But I do think that you, when you think about migration in Latin America, you need to understand the interconnection between the reasons why people are fleeing, countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, or Haiti, the challenges they face in the journey, and how all of this relates to U.S. immigration policy. Because the truth is that the U.S. government, including during the Biden administration, has been outsourcing its immigration policy to Mexico and to Central America. And, you know, a lot of the problems we see is a consequence of that. Yeah, I saw you advocating for that. And I saw you trying to demonstrate step by step how the Biden-Harris administration would be able to fulfill that migration policy that they're trying to outsource. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so look, there, there were a lot of problems with the way the Trump administration dealt with its migration policy. We've been very critical, for example, of Title 42, which is this policy that allows the U.S. to stop people from seeking asylum inside the United States. It was presented as a public health regulation, but it continues to be used to arbitrarily deny people the right to seek asylum. And that's a fundamental violation of international and U.S. law. And, you know, it continues to happen. Like right now, the U.S. government has announced that they would provide 24,000 Venezuelans the possibility to legally enter the country. But to do so, they have these requirements that in practice make it nearly impossible for so many Venezuelans to apply. Like you need a passport, you need to fly. In practical terms, that means that those who are really trying to get to the U.S. border, the ones who have to cross the Darien Gap jungle and be exposed to horrible abuses, they cross the region by foot to try to get the U to the southern border in the United States, will not be able to get access to this humanitarian parole. And while they announced this humanitarian parole, they also started applying the Title 42 regulations to Venezuelans who are now being kicked out to Mexico and being forced to wait there with, you know, people from many other nationalities that have been subject to the same policies today and facing very dangerous circumstances in northern Mexico and difficulty accessing basic services like access to health or access to education for kids. That's a, It's a lot to deal with, especially in terms of, I think I'm always trying to say what you just said, which is people have to walk. How else do you get across a border when you're in an, a state of emergency is that people have to travel by foot. And I think that that's overlooked a lot of the time, especially when we're trying to apply a policy lens. There's a lot of lack of compassion in doing so. It's just, it's hard to imagine where people go and what they would do. I know that we talked a little bit about what refugees are doing and where they're trying to go to, but, and I know you've talked a little bit about economic loss and how the pandemic has affected many countries in the region, but why have we seen a spike in violence throughout Latin America in 2022? Well, I think it's important to talk about the different ways in which we've seen a spike in violence in Latin America. So we are seeing, you know, increased repression in 
the dictatorships. So in Nicaragua, for example, there are nearly 200 people who are perceived as government critics that are arbitrarily detained. Um, you know, many who were arrested in the context of the presidential elections in 2021, there was a crackdown on opponents. There was massive jailing of dozens of people, including seven presidential candidates, which led to elections that were a fake election that didn't really express the will of the people. In that context, people were held in comunicado for weeks, sometimes for months. They were subject to prolonged solitary confinement, and they were subject to abusive conditions and detention. In a country like El Salvador, what we're seeing is something different. The authorities that have the responsibility to tackle an issue like gang violence, which is indeed a big problem that Salvadorans care about, they have done so not through rights-respecting public security policies, but instead by adopting a broad state of emergency, which was adopted in March after a spike in homicides in the country, that has allowed authorities to adopt laws that are very repressive. And through those mechanisms, they detained over 52,000 people, including more than 1,600 children. And of these cases, and 45,000 cases, the courts have sent detainees to six-month pretrial detention. This state of emergency was initially adopted for 30 days. It has been extended several times. And they are rounding up people because they have a tattoo or because they are in the wrong place at the wrong time. It doesn't really constitute public security policy. And what we know is that, in fact, the spike of violence at the beginning of March that led to the state of emergency was the result of the end of a truce between Salvadoran authorities and gangs at the time. So, you know, we see that sort of abuse and violence coming up. And the other type of cases of violence have to do with government repression of free speech and the possibility of people to complain and protest government abuse. And the clear example of that was Cuba. You know, as we talked earlier, thousands of people took to the streets for the first time in decades. And according to Cuban rights groups that we work with, we work with more than 1,500 people, most of them were peaceful demonstrators or bystanders, were detained since July 2021 when the people took to the streets. And of those, more than 600 are still behind bars today. They are periodically held in comunicado. They suffer ill treatment. In some cases, we've documented torture. And then they are subject to prosecutions without due process. So unfortunately, going back to your question, there is a long list of ways in which we've seen an increased level of violence in Latin America, which for the most part is carried out with impunity. Because countries in which this happens typically have weak or non-independent judicial systems that are not functioning as a check on executive power or to hold the power for accountable when they commit it. Yeah, absolutely. And also the rise of authoritarian authoritarian regimes and dictatorships are another one as well. There's a, a good theory in global affairs that if 
there's not a lot of democratic areas in the region, it's more difficult to have bipartisan allyship and to increase transparency. And when dictators or authoritarian regimes work together or when they're close by to each other, it creates an even stronger wall of silence for the international community to be able to reach in and do something about. And unfortunately, Latin America in several countries, Colombia, Brazil, have had such abysmal human rights records. And it's been so difficult to hold people accountable over these years. So, you know, just shining a light and having conversations like this are so important. I know I also saw you advocating for or uh, agreeing with the decision for the UN member states to not include Venezuela on the 47 National Council for 2023-2025. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit and why that's important? Of course. The Human Rights Council, the UN Human Rights Council is the top human rights body for the United Nations. It's made up of states. So you have good and bad actors sitting at the table. Uh, The purpose of this council is to monitor human rights compliance by peers at the state level. Obviously, when you have a Venezuela, a Cuba, or a China sitting at the table, they don't really do that part of the job. They are not interested in being subjected to criticism or to holding others up to the standards that are established in international human rights law. So Venezuela did not deserve a seat at that table. When it was a candidate three years ago, it won by a very narrow margin of five votes. And we campaigned very strongly this year because, you know, sometimes prior to these elections, we are in a difficult situation because you have the same amount of slots than number of candidates. And that's, you know, very difficult because we really don't have an option, right? Whoever is a candidate ends up being sitting, ends up sitting at the table. Instead, when you have a competitive slate, like it happened this time, we do have an opportunity to advocate for who should be sitting at that table to carry out the actual job. And this time for the group of Latin America and the Caribbean, we had three states, Venezuela, Chile, and Costa Rica, and two slots. So our big portion campaign was to get Venezuela out of the council. And this time, not only did they get the least amount of votes for members of Latin America and the Caribbean, but they don't they didn't even get the number of seats required. It's the minimum to be able to be elected had they been only two candidates in this opportunity. It sends a huge message worldwide that they didn't get a seat. It does. And it comes right after a decision a report by a group of experts appointed but by that same Human Rights Council that documented that intelligence services in Venezuela were responsible for crimes against humanity and that they had received orders where this was part of a plan that implicated high-level officials, including Nicolás Maduro himself. So it would have been a terrible contradiction to give Venezuela the reward of sitting back at the table at the Human Rights Council when a group of independent experts appointed by the state Human Rights Council has just concluded that they were implicated in the gravest international crime. Mm -hmm. If it's my understanding, then Eritrea is still on the council. Let's just hope that people push for the same change. That is true. I mean, we still have a lot of challenges. Cuba is on the council. So we have a long way to go. And unfortunately, sometimes these elections are subject to politics and to the negotiation of votes between states. As you say, a very important message that this time they didn't get away with. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a great win for human rights defenders. 
So just switching gears a little bit, talking more about the individual perspective and experience when in these countries and reporting on such issues, what does it mean to be an independent journalist or human rights defender in Latin America today? And what risks do they face? A lot of risks, I would say. Look, in this context of closing democratic spaces, human rights defenders, independent journalists, and it would be a bit broader even prosecutors or judges in some of these countries play a fundamental role. I would say that that's the silver lining of this depressing situation for democracy in the region, because you have still, even in the closed society, strong people advocating for rights and putting a check on executive powers that feel they can do whatever they want. As part of this dismantling of the rule of law, they have In many countries, there are no independent institutions left to act as a check on executive power, or those in power are actively seeking to undermine those independent institutions left. So in that context, journalists and human rights defenders are key actors holding the force. The risks are huge. You know, if you look at a country like Honduras, there were nearly 100 journalists reported that were killed in the last 20 years, five of them this year. If you go to Mexico, for example, 14 journalists were killed in 2022. We aren't even at the end of the year. This is a huge spike compared to the seven that were killed in 2021. In a country like Nicaragua, what we have seen is that as part of a crackdown, journalists are being detained and the government has decided to directly close hundreds. Nearly 2,000 NGOs organizations NGOs were closed in 2022, and this includes humanitarian groups, medical groups, religious groups. So anyone who's willing to speak up faces the risk of retaliation and being shut down. In a country like Brazil, for example, we've worked a lot and are very concerned about the consequences that Amazon forest defenders, you know, they're victims of threats, of attacks. There have been more than 60 people who were killed in conflict over land and resources in the Amazon between 2020 and July this year, according to local groups we work with. And in nearly all these cases, there is never a trial. So again, the issue of impunity is a big, big problem in these situations, because when these abuses are committed against a journalist or a human rights defender and no one is held accountable, it sends a very complicated message, right? Because it it feels as if there's a blank check to continue in the same direction. And, you know, certainly that shouldn't be the case. Can you explain the nuances of why land defenders might face more hardship in being human rights defenders than a journalist or an academic per se? It depends on the country. Brazil, obviously, the Amazon is extremely important, not only for Brazil, but for the entire world due to environmental reasons. And there is illegal logging. And what what forest defenders do is stand up to illegal mafias. So it's not just about protecting the land or protecting the rights. It's about standing up to criminal groups that are willing to do anything to continue with their criminal activities. In the context of Brazil, it's been particularly problematic because under Bolsonaro, the government has dismantled institutions that were supposed to protect them. So not only do you have these illegal groups 
that are able to commit abuses against defenders, you have a government that did nearly nothing to protect them. If anything, what they did was make it harder for the agencies charged with protecting these people to do their job. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. It's also, it should be noted that there's deforestation in Brazil because people are looking for wood worldwide. China's very relevant uh, or prevalent in the area. Canadian companies as well, U.S. companies as well. A lot of the time these companies go in, incentivize the governments, pad their pockets nicely, and then the governments would rather protect the income, the economic source of income than the people who actually live there. And another reason for the deforestation, of course, is agriculturalists, cow farming, right? So there's just a lot of compounding interests that center around the Amazon, which is such an important area for the world, as Tamara just explained to us. So it goes quietly as well, because they're indigenous populations, they seem to just be ignored or overlooked or just over heavily more so marginalized, I think. So it's just important to think about. And then I would add that Brazil is obviously a clear example of that. It's not the only one in the region. You know, if you just, if you think of Mexico, for example, you know, it's one of the most dangerous places in the world for environmental defenders as well. You know, they tracked, if you look at Global Witness, for example, they tracked 54 people killed in 2021. In the first half of this year, you know, not necessarily environmental defenders, but 12 human rights defenders were killed in Mexico. And, you know, there again, you see two problems. You have a lack of investigation, you know, which is part of a much broader problem of impunity in Mexico, generally speaking, of crime and human rights abuses, but also because you have protection mechanisms for human rights defenders or journalists that are underfunded for one part, but also they don't have the power to force local authorities to take real action to protect these people so that they can carry out their meaningful jobs. So it's a it's a complex web of reasons that cause the threat. The lack of protection and investigation certainly contributes to this in, in many countries in Latin America. Yeah, it's definitely very complex, multi-tiered. There's so many different elements to this in both individual countries as well as regionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to tackle there. What does it mean to implement accountability mechanisms, bodies, or tools in Latin America? And do you think that that would expose power abuse or mitigate it? Look, what, what happens in practice is that when you have weak justice systems that are unable to, or unable or willing to investigate and prosecute those responsible, we have turned to the international community in different ways in Latin America. You have, for example, the example of Mexico, where several years ago, There was a very paradigmatic case in which 43 students were disappeared. And it was a huge scandal because it was 43, because it was students, and because the world was paying attention. And despite the fact that the world was paying attention, the prosecutor's office in Mexico did a horrible job investigating this case. The government of Mexico sought support from international experts appointed by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights who had access to criminal files, who had the support of NGOs and family victims, and worked very hard to expose how bad the investigation had been by the prosecutor's office. And they contributed to pushing for accountability within the Mexican justice system. And, you know, several years have gone by, and that still remains a big challenge. In other places, that's not even possible. So if you look at the situation in Venezuela, for example, 
since 2004, the government had organized, put in practice a political takeover of the Supreme Court. And since then, the lack of judicial independence has trickled down to the entire judiciary. So when we started seeing systematic abuses committed during crackdowns on the, in the streets in 2014 and 2017, and even today, what human rights defenders have done together with victims and their families is look for accountability outside. And we've actively sought to create this independent group of experts that we were talking about earlier that was created by the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva. And this group of experts started gathering evidence and they were able to produce damning reports documenting that crimes against humanity were committed, that the judiciary was complicit in the abuses. And these two reports were instrumental to put on the table the extent of the abuses and the inability of local authorities to investigate and hold those responsible accountable. And I don't think it's a coincidence that after these reports, the prosecutor's office at the International Criminal Court decided to open the first investigation on Latin America for possible crimes against humanity committed in Minnesota. I love hearing that. It really inspires me as an individual because when they weren't getting the help that they needed, they went out and they did it themselves and it caused real change. And I, I love hearing that. And that speaks to how advocacy absolutely works, even if even if you don't see it immediately. What I would add to that is I agree. And for this effort in particular, the advocacy was conducted by local Venezuelan organizations, international human rights groups. And it was a really a coordinated effort in which we all had the same purpose and worked together to create the independent group of experts three years ago to renew their mandate for the first time after the first year to renew their mandate again in September this year, which allows this group now to be able to monitor the situation in Venezuela for two more years. And this is extremely important, not only because the repression is ongoing, but also because it would allow this group to have preventive monitoring roles in the lead up to presidential elections that are scheduled for 2024. And what we've seen in the past is that in this pre-electoral context, there is an increasing level of threat of abuses being committed on the street. So it's, it's not just about the accountability, but it is also this preventive factor that is incredibly important. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for recapturing that. And it does make me think of Tigray, seeing as they kicked out uh, UN representatives. I, I hope, I swear that they are trying to band together with the resources that they have and do something proactive, such as such as this example that you just provided, and, and that human resiliency is just really important, even in times of hardship. How can the international community provide Latin America the attention it deserves? That's an excellent question, and we have a hard time fighting to get attention from the international community because there is a war in Europe, and because, you know, there are conflicts like the one in Syria or Afghanistan. There's always some competing emergency that makes it harder to pay attention to a region that, except for the United States, is very far away of other regional powers. I think, you know, it's important to 
understand that Latin America is a region where there are a lot of also economic interests at stake. There's an increasing Chinese influence in the region, as in other parts of the world, which is a reason to pay attention to Latin America. The closing of democratic spaces is extremely problematic, not only for the people who live in Latin America, but also because some governments, for example, in Europe have this idea that governments in Latin America are like-minded governments that they can count on. And it's getting harder and harder to find those. If you look at foreign policy from Latin American governments in terms of human rights issues, like we don't have many examples of governments that have that continue to have a consistent foreign policy on human rights that will support resolution on Tigris, a resolution to debate the High Commissioner's report on China, a resolution to create a special rapporteur on what's happening inside Russia. You need stronger democracies in Latin America, not only for the people of Latin America, but also to be able to count on Latin America as a region that will support efforts to uphold fundamental rights and the rule of law elsewhere in the world. Yeah, that's a really good point, is that there hasn't been a, a continuation of leaders who are advocating for these things. So it's really difficult to create long-lasting change if you don't have that structure or that baseline to go off of. Yeah, and what I would say is, obviously the United States is closer to Latin America geographically, and even so, there doesn't seem to be like a clear policy towards Latin America from the U.S. government. What we see is an interest in immigration, more mostly like a domestic issue, not necessarily as an issue that's related about foreign policy or Latin America, or there's an interest in what happens in Florida because of electoral concerns. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S., which is very close to Latin America, has a clear policy towards the region. The European Union is organizing for next year, during Spain's presidency, a summit between Latin American governments and European governments that is an incredibly important opportunity to put all these issues on the table and for the European Union to pay attention and to play an important role, strengthening human rights and the rule of law in the region. And as I said, you know, when you leave these spaces and you don't have rights-respecting governments pay attention to a region like Latin America, what you are in effect doing is opening the space for other powers like China mm-hmm. to play an increasingly important role. And it was never as clear as with the, Chi- the Chinese vaccine diplomacy during the pandemic. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, most countries in Latin America only received vaccines from China and Russia. And they had to pay for them. It was not for free, but it was the only thing we got. Even if later on the United States donated millions of vaccines, it came late. And it came after the generalized perception was that the, that space had been taken over by China or by Russia, which are governments that clearly do not care about what 
human rights policies that American government implemented. Yeah, that's a good point. China's also been very active in African countries as well. And it just seems that they're taking ownership of these places. And, and let's see what happens in the future. If they're not checked properly, it would be terrifying to think of this vacuum that could be created. Indeed. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that you would like to? The one additional issue that I think is critically important to understand Latin America is, which is related to justice systems, but there's a a lot of corruption in the region that not only undermines the rule of law and the trust that people may have in government or undermines transparency policies, but it does have an impact on human rights because you have policies and practices that enable people in power to use money, to keep money in their pockets instead of using it to provide for a region where levels of inequality are increasing. So, you know, the fight against corruption and the strengthening of the rule of law is increasingly important in Latin America because it is undermining so many people's access to basic rights, like access to healthcare, access to education, access to food. And and as I said, this is happening in a region where we had very high inequality rates before the pandemic, and that has only gotten worse. If we're looking at issues and policies that should be prioritized prioritized in the future, this certainly should be one of them. Thank you for, for speaking to that. Finally, our last question and our most important one is, how can listeners help from home? I think it's critically important to stay informed and to having listened to this podcast means that you're interested in the world and that you care. So I would say keeping yourself informed and sharing what happens in Latin America is of extreme help because it's, you know, it's very easy not to pay attention because it seems far away. And and we see one of the big challenges we are facing in, in many of these countries is the powerful narrative that authoritarian governments have. And, you know, let me give you an example. In the country of El Salvador, where, as we discussed, there is a broad state of emergency that is being implemented in violation of basic fundamental rights of thousands of people in the country. Despite all of that, President Bukele remains extremely popular. Mm. And, you know, that is may well be because many people feel that what's happening in El Salvador doesn't touch them very closely. And, you know, our job is to be able to explain that when a ruler is allowed to undermine the rule of law and do what someone like Bukele is doing, you know, it may not be happening to you now, but it could well happen to you tomorrow. Um, and, and I think that's a very important message to remember and to shape. So going back to your question about like, how can listeners help? I think like being informed and sharing the risk that these measures to undermine the rule of law and that human rights violations pose to the population, even if 
it doesn't touch you directly today is extremely important. Not only because it recognizes the suffering that others are facing, but also because you're preventing this from getting worse and from reaching other people in this situation. Well, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I know I learned a lot today. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I can't wait to just follow you and keep up with your work. Thank you very much for having me.